quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julianne Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Taper time. Stocks rise even as the Federal Reserve slows stimulus support. COP contradictions. Nations unite to curb fossil fuels as President Biden tells OPEC pump more oil. And Merck's magic. The pharma giant's COVID pill approved by UK regulators. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, as always, and another busy show as you will deduce. Patient power keeps Fed policy loose, but the Bank of England closer to an interest rate boost. OPEC Plus faces a world demanding more juice, even as leaders plot to ensure their reliance is reduced. Today's COP26 goal, the phasing out of coal. And we've got the latest and, in the meantime, also the greatest lineup of green guests to keep you seduced. The EU climate head Franz Timmermans and the Prime Minister of Barbados, who's fighting to protect her nation from the impact of climate change and demanding more from the world's biggest polluters. Plus, the co-founder and president of SES, a charged-up company working on new generation batteries to keep electric vehicles on the go for longer. So from net zeros to stock heroes, U.S. markets are remain at record highs, comforted, I think, by Jay Powell's assurances that rate hikes are still far away, even as the Fed reduces some of its bond buying support. Talented telegraphing, let's call it that. But will the Fed be forced to move sooner? The market, at least, think so. And we will discuss Europe in the meantime at records, too. And even within the past hour, the Bank of England defying expectations for a rate hike, voting to keep policy on hold for now. All eyes now on December's meeting. Lots to get to this Thursday. Let's get to our drivers. And Jay Powell is patient, but on inflation, he's far from complacent. The rise in global prices alarming central bankers around the world and a key issue for U.S. voters this week, too. Christine Romans joins me now. Great to have you with us. Taper telegraphing meant that stocks took this in their stride, but I think a unanimous decision from the Federal Reserve board members here that they simply had to act now. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that it was well telegraphed here. Mm. So you you have this new era turning the page. There are so many different, uh, you know, cliches to use here. But essentially, the Fed is telling the world it's going to take its foot off the pedal. And it is eyeing inflation, looking for that moment when it has to actually start tapping on the brakes. And that will be sometime in the future. The Fed also, the Fed chief also saying that he will be nimble. uh, He will be nimble if he has to, but he doesn't exactly say what, what the parameters are for them to start to um, taper more quickly, right, into next year. So I think all said, you had markets that were were sanguine, frankly, about this decision and looking um, and looking forward. I mean, record highs in the stock market, not really big moves um, in the bond market here. And and on the inflation front, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that many of us, me included, I mean, inflation has not has been lasted much longer and been much 
much deeper than I think many people thought several months ago. Um, but, you know, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, was very clear, uh, someone who had the Fed job, actually. She said that, you know, we don't need to be worried about, like, the 70s, that horrible stagflation. That's why we worry so much about inflation is because the last time we really had it, it was horrible. Listen to what she said. We did see in the 1970s a series of supply shocks became a longer-run problem, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I certainly see no evidence that that's the case now. Um, Inflation expectations remain well-anchored. Well anchored. And she says, you know, second half of next year, you'll start to see those inflation, those comparisons uh, start, the inflation rates start to come down again a bit as well. So just a lot going on on this front. And it's, you know, the markets are taking it all in stride. I mean, most of us don't remember the 70s quite frankly. And I think what a lot of families are facing today feels bad enough. I mean, you've got some of these board members, Raphael Bostic springs to mind that's got a swear jar now in his central banks. Every time someone says transitory, you know, he puts a dollar in the swear jar. Um, Do you think they're going to have to act quicker? Because as you said, actually, markets, investors took this in their stride, but the bond markets are predicting three rate hikes in 2022. So even from very low levels, we could start to see in the face of higher prices and some of those pressures, cost of things like mortgages, credit cards going up at the same time. So Jay Powell said we need to be in position to act in case it becomes necessary. But he didn't say what the conditions were to make Mm. it necessary to move more quickly. Uh, And I think that's on purpose. I think that gives the Fed breathing space We have multiple things happening to drive inflation here at the same time. Supply chain issues. You've got everybody, consumers coming all out at the same time, rushing after goods uh, and services. You've got a labor market shortage in the United States. So it's multiple wrinkles here that have have fed into this inflation um, situation. And each one of them could work themselves out on a different timeline. So it's just it's I hate to use the word unprecedented. It's like the word transitory, overused and I don't know, subjective, but it is unprecedented. Swear jar. Dollar in there. $2 for you. Thank you, Christine. Great to have you with us. (laughs) We'll throw it energy prices there as well as one of the pressures. And uh, COP working on this, consigning coal to history. The UK says the end of coal is in sight as at least 40 nations pledge to phase out its use. The coalition includes big coal users such as Poland and Vietnam and comes as COP26 turns its focus to fuel and energy, not signing up China, which consumes more coal than the rest of the world combined. Now, as COP26 nations plot the end of the fossil fuel era in the short term, at least, many of the same countries are pressuring OPEC plus to increase oil supply. Oh, the irony. The alliance meets today as the Bank of America warns that $120 a barrel is on the horizon. Eleni Jokos joins me now. Eleni, I'm sure the irony not lost on you either of the need to try and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, but at the same time saying, hey, guys, OPEC plus members, you could keep the profits from higher oil prices and invest that into renewables. But hey, we'd rather you supply more oil to the market and bring prices down. Hmm. Right. It's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, look, you've got COP26 on the go. You've got big push for everyone to commit to the climate change agenda. Specifically, oil producing nations have really been pushed to make big commitments to help themselves, but also the rest of the world wean themselves off 
fossil fuels. Now, at the same time, you have this commodity and you want to capitalize on the revenue while it's still around, while there's huge demand. But it's not that simple. OPEC plus countries are currently meeting to discuss the supply demand dynamics. And this is really important. It's coming at a really important time. Uh, Crude prices have increased by over 60 percent this year alone. I want to take you back during the height of the pandemic, Julian. I'm sure you remember talking about crude prices dropping below zero, which was completely unprecedented. And now you have uh, oil prices sitting at levels we haven't seen in seven years. So um, OPEC plus countries want to try and get their books back on balance. It is an important time. They don't want to increase supply too dramatically. They've committed to 400,000 barrels per month increases since uh, August. Now they're getting pressure from the U.S. India and Japan has also chimed in as well, saying OPEC plus countries need to assist. Why? You've got an energy crunch and deficit that is occurring in the uh, European uh, region. You also have this playing out in the U.S. You have an increase of petrol and oil prices, which of course impacts households. It could derail the economic recovery, which many people, by the way, didn't anticipate would happen so quickly. But Riyadh and the likes of Abu Dhabi are going to be taking consideration in terms of their economic ties and links to the U.S. while this decision is being made. However, many OPEC Plus members have said they're happy with the current uh, state of uh, the crude price Um, And they, for now, are not willing to budge. But, I mean, the next few hours are going to be really interesting. Yeah, and well put, Eleni. We shall see what comes of the next few hours. So many challenges, and not just about energy. The geopolitics of this crucial, too. Eleni Jockers there. Thank you. Another first in the fight against coronavirus. UK regulators have approved the world's first treatment for COVID in pill form created by Merck. Elizabeth Cohen joins this joins us on this. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. So the British Health Secretary called it a day for the history books that this is a game changer. What do we need to understand about this moment? Because it does feel like that. Right. So, Julia, let's talk about what's currently available for people in the early stages of COVID-19. If you're in the early stages of COVID-19, at least in the United States, there's not a whole lot for you. There's monoclonal antibodies made by Regeneron and other companies, and those do really work well. But at least in the U.S., they can be really hard to get because they have to be given by a shot or given intravenously. This is a pill. Now, they've applied to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for authorization, and there's going to be a meeting on November 30th among FDA advisors to talk about this pill. So the UK is sort of several steps ahead here. Let's take a look at the clinical trials that Merck did for this antiviral pill. What they found, they had 762 clinical trial participants with early stage COVID-19. When they gave them a placebo, over time, 45 were hospitalized and eight died. When they gave them molnupiravir, the actual antiviral drug, 28 were hospitalized and zero died. So you can see that when even these, though these were split in half, you had far more hospitalizations and far more deaths with the placebo group. You didn't have any deaths with the molnupiravir group. So this data will be scrutinized by U.S. regulators, but you know already U.K. regulators say that they think that this ought to be in use. Again, very helpful because it's a pill. And but remember, this is for early stage COVID. You have to get to people early, Julia. Yeah, this is critical. And you also make the point with what else is available on the market. And clearly, as we've discussed on many occasions, limited resources and expensive. Do we have any sense of how much this is going to cost? Obviously, it will be different for different nations, depending on who Merck's supplying. But any sense at this stage? 
You know, I think likely, Julia, it's going to be different for different countries. That's sort of yeah. been the way that this has worked throughout the pandemic, that drugs are d different prices for different countries. You know, hopefully this will be something where if it's authorized in, for example, developing countries, that they will get a very low price. Yeah, fingers crossed. Elizabeth, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Elizabeth Cohen there. Thanks. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. International diplomats are intensifying calls for a ceasefire in the East African nation of Ethiopia. One year ago, a government assault on forces in the nation's Tigray region sparked a brutal war. The nation is now officially under a state of emergency as sources say Tigrayan fighters draw closer to the capital. A new report by the Pentagon says China is expanding its nuclear arsenal much faster than previously thought. It estimates Beijing could have 1,000 nuclear warheads by the end of the decade. That's significantly higher than last year's projection of 400. China has defended its nuclear strategy and says the Pentagon's report is biased. Still to come on First Move, broken promises. Barbados calls rich nations immoral for failing to deliver climate aid. An interview with the Prime Minister is next. And Battery Breakthrough, a GM backed startup, unveils a battery that weighs less than a kilo but can power a car. We speak to the CEO of SES. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The S&P and Nasdaq are on track for fresh all-time highs this Thursday. Investors seemingly pacified by Powell. The Fed chair saying U.S. rate hikes won't begin anytime soon. And the ECB, the European Central Bank, mirroring that message today, saying higher rates are unlikely even next year. A different story in the United Kingdom, though, where rates could begin rising as soon as next month. They didn't act today, despite expectations. Investors' hopes for strong economies, robust profits and rock-bottom rates reflect in the VIX volatility index, now hovering close to 52-week lows. Wow, take a look at that. But new challenges await markets soon. The U.S. releases its October non-farm payrolls report tomorrow. So we await that too. Now back to COP26 and smaller nations. Climate conference came with a stern message for the world's largest polluters. Pay more and move quicker. In particular, Barbados in the Caribbean, which generates less than 1% of world's emissions, criticizing rich countries for missing a $100 billion a year target for funding climate action. Prime Minister Mia Motley says Barbados is suffering drought-like conditions, destruction of coral reefs, contamination of aquifers and foul-smelling seaweed from rising water temperatures. This year, Barbados was hit by its first hurricane in 66 years, and before that, a freak storm that unleashed 45,000 lightning strikes in 90 minutes. I spoke to the Prime Minister and the EU climate chief, Franz Timmermans, just a few moments ago. I hope I was heard. I think that from the feedback that the message certainly is beginning to get home. Um, whether we've made enough progress is a different story. I think we have made some, but some is not enough. And therefore, we'll continue to be able to make the sounds because if we don't reach 1.5 degrees um, above pre-industrial levels, um, we will literally face some very, very challenging times in our countries, ranging from shortages of water to excessive rainfall to um, the destruction of life in our, our, in our marine areas um, to the literally destruction of aquifers with saltwater incursion. So what is at stake is really our capacity to survive as we know it. And as not just said. small islands. 
It's life or death. I think that's the message that you came with. Uh, Vice President, your Ultimately. assessment of the announcements that have been made? I mean, we've, we've got a litany to tackle methane gas, to tackle low reliance on coal, a declaration to tackle deforestation over the coming years. What do you make of what we've seen so far? Well, at least the sense of urgency has increased. Um, mm. uh, leaders are now saying things that Greta Thunberg was saying four years ago. So uh, that's progress, I guess. And I have to say, Prime Minister Motley, she, she impressed the hell out of everyone with her speech at the United Nations, which was extremely powerful and, and has uh, increased the sense of urgency across the board that in the Caribbean we have specific challenges that need to be addressed and that can't only be addressed by the countries in the region. We all have to take that responsibility. And, and she's a leader who doesn't just point to the problems. She also comes with some very constructive solutions. Prime Minister, come in here because um, you were impressive, but I think part of the problem is commitments are made and then we don't see the follow through. And I think you were one of the loudest voices saying, hang on a second, $100 billion has been promised for the transition and to mitigate the impact of climate change. And the, some of the richer nations are saying, look, sorry, but we're not going to give you the money until 2023. It's, it's a commitment and then it's a broken promise. Yeah, well, as, as you said, we've been waiting for this to come to fruition for some time, and it is still not going to come until 2023. Um, I have and hope to discuss with the others parallel opportunities that are not necessarily part of that $100 billion, because as I said on, on Monday, $100 billion is not going to be enough to really do the kinds of transitions that we need. And the other problem that we have is not just quantum of money, but it's the time to execute. And the third problem is access to fiscal space. If governments don't have the fiscal space, um, no matter how much you make money available to them, they can't receive it, they can't borrow it because they're highly indebted. And, and that's where the justice of the situation comes in because this is the equivalent of you dumping in your neighbor's yard and then telling your neighbor he has to clean up and the money that he had put down to pay rent or mortgage or to buy food or to do things around the house, he can no longer do it because he has to clean up the yard. So it's fundamentally immoral, it's fundamentally unjust. And that's what we're saying, look, some of this has to be grants, some of this has to be blended finance, some of it has to be to the private sector. But what's more importantly is the essence of speed. Because if you take two, three, four years to do this and the adaptation has to happen, 1.5 is scheduled, they believe, anywhere from 12 to 15 years. And it's not a, a case of us starting to see consequences at 1.5 because we're seeing consequences all like now. You're seeing it in Europe, we're seeing it in the Caribbean and the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean. So that this is a complex, complex exercise that is not pausing to allow us to catch up. And that's the key point. Vice President Timmons, I, I know we all agree here. The G20 came into these meetings having had discussions. Were discussions about perhaps some deficit allowance for climate spending, some debt relief for climate spending? Because everything the Prime Minister makes sense is certainly saying here and makes sense to me and resonates with me. You've got to buy time and allow fiscal space in order to spend to meet the needs of climate change. Yes, I think we're all faced with that challenge, but particularly countries that don't have the means, especially in adaptation. So what I want to push for in the next days and weeks at Glasgow is that, first of all, we get to the 100 billion even quicker than uh, that was announced uh, earlier. So we really have to increase uh, the efforts to get there very quickly. Secondly, to make sure that enough of that money is spent on adaptation. 
because I believe yes, on mitigation, so. which is actually reducing the emissions, the private sector is 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 well and ready. Uh, but on adaptation, the private sector is slightly more reluctant. So we will need more public funding uh, for that part of our task. Prime Minister, I can hear you agreeing with that. There are two things that need to be financed here, adapting to the impact of climate change and then the mitigating steps that we take beyond. Yeah, I think what one of the things that we need to do in addition to accessing the public funding is that we need to look at what other market instruments are necessary to be able to crowd in more money. So, for example, our private sector is not necessarily um, the most, um, how do I put it, they're more risk-averse than we would probably like. And, and their depth of resources is not there because of the size of our economies. So we have to marry that with foreign capital. And it is critical for the marriage because you can't have foreign capital coming in alone to do some of these projects. But what we're finding is that we have to find ways of de-risking some of the investments. So whether it is the use of guarantees or whether it is the use of private equity with first loss being taken like by entities like the Green Climate Fund, these are the things that will make investments that are otherwise too small or not necessarily looking too good, but are absolutely critical for the adaptation that has to take place if we are to learn to live in a post 1.5 world. Mm, and and I may I say, it starts with us, but you know, th this is going to affect New York, it's going to affect um, Miami, it's going to affect all cities across the the developed world ultimately. And that's why we say we're the canaries in the system. And if you don't get us right, you're putting yourselves at greater peril. Yeah, you're right. It's coming to everybody. You may be facing it first, but it's coming to everyone. That's right. What you mentioned there as well, I think was quite fascinating about the need to have greater access to financing of different kinds. The UK government announced that they hope to become the heart of green financing for the world. What did you make of that announcement? Well, look, I mean, <laughs> we hope that we can see opportunities for access for all of our people, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in the US, whether it's in China, whether it's in Europe. What matters is the access now. And, and, and I'm happy that they have that ambition because with that ambition, hopefully they'll have passion and they'll begin to understand the urgency of timing. One of the problems for small island developing states is that we don't necessarily have the depth of capacity to be able to process and to do complex applications. And it's one of the things that we have been in discussions over the years with the EU saying, look, we can't have a one-size-fits-all prescription because a country like Tuvalu can't do the same kind of <coughs> analysis as Ghana. And therefore, mm. we, we have to be able to streamline instruments. And we also have to, even with risk, we have to ensure that risk is appropriate, that our, our, our actions sorry, are appropriate to the risk. And, and one of the things, therefore, has to be to deconstruct the entire application process that allows people to have access to the funds, recognize the absence of fiscal space and hence the need for blended finance mm. um, uh, as much as possible and crowding in other persons. And then at the same time, there's some non-traditional mechanisms once you're hit with a climatic event, like the inclusion, for example, of natural disaster clauses. Barbados is now the largest issuer of bonds with natural disaster clauses in the world. And what does that allow us to do? That if we really get hit by a serious event, then we are in a position to suspend our principal payments for debt, as well as to suspend our interest, but recapitalize the interest at the back end. We've accepted the recapitalization of interest, but quite frankly, I've always felt that there ought to be some haircut on the interest too, because if we're going to share the burden, then the burden should be shared by all, including those owners of capital. 
Yeah, I mean, there's so many good ideas in there. Um, Vice President, come in here because I do see many inconsistencies. Um, I read recently IMF data that suggested that there are $11 million spent a minute on subsidising fossil fuels. We're making agreements to effectively put some of the OPEC players out of the oil business, but we're also at the same time demanding in the short term, at least, they pump more oil. Barbados and the Prime Minister, I understand that your issues there, but at the same time, you rely to a large extent on tourism, which has a carbon footprint of its own. Um, I do feel like we sort of want it all. Can we have it all? Yeah, we, we can't. And, 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 but the truth is we have to do some balancing. And that's why it's a complex issue. Look, we're going to need some kind of bridging fuel probably. And the world is seeing it now. You're seeing it in Europe with the increase in energy pricing um, and the access to natural gas. The question is we know coal has to go. Um, but then we know that we still have to have bridging fuels until we can get the capacity up for renewable energy. If not, people will have no energy. And that's clearly just as bad as having the wrong energy. So we really need to do the kind of detailed drilling down work to see how best we can deal with it. And I know that there is a perspective among some countries that to ask them to abandon completely all of the fossil fuels, including the natural gas, which is the cleaner of the fuels, um, that, that that will literally cement them into poverty. So that this is a very complex discussion, and we have to be able to come to the table recognizing that there are going to have to be some kind of compensatory frameworks or some other alternatives into new um, research, um, even with respect to cruise ships and, and the airline industry in order to be able to reduce the footprint. Because quite frankly, I don't see the world going back into silos. We didn't go back into silo in a pandemic. We're not going to go back into silos because once interconnected, it's likely to stay. Um, But I have confidence, as I've said elsewhere, that we will find fuels that can work. Five years ago, if you were running fast ferries, you would be using marine gas oil. Now you can use um, some form of LPG. And the question is, will we be able to use hydrogen or other things that will have perhaps a a, a much lesser carbon footprint, but can be as effective in moving people? You make the point that we have to move forward and we're all moving forward together. Vice President, final word, please, your view. Well, you know, we need to understand that this is a an industrial revolution of a bigger scale than the first industrial revolution uh, that took 100 years to be materialized. And now we need to change the world at at every place in the world uh, within one generation, which is the uh, most daunting challenge uh, humanity's ever faced. But the good news is we can do this, but we need to rethink our instruments. Just imagine the international financial institutions were created for the world of 1945, not the world of today. So we need to reimagine our instruments, reimagine the things we can do. And if we do that, I'm sure we can come out of this stronger and better. I'm glad that you both are involved in leading the discussion. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Thank you you. for your time today. Thank you very much. Great to have you with us and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Thank you. US investors hoping for a triumphant Thursday. Tech stocks as well as the S&P 500 are at fresh records. U.S. small caps, meanwhile, scaling new heights too, a sign, I think, of investor confidence in future economic growth. The Russell 2000 currently up some 22% year-to-date, performing better even than the large-cap Dow index. Meanwhile, Merck shares higher in early trade. As we've already discussed, the U.K. has just approved its antiviral pill for COVID, the first COVID treatment in pill form to get regulatory approval. Shares of COVID vaccine maker, in the meantime, Moderna, 
are falling after cutting its vaccine sales forecast and reporting weaker than expected Q3 results. Once again, context always key. Moderna is still up more than 200% year to date. There's a look at the share price since January. The push to phase out coal power is one step closer after major consumers, including Ukraine and Chile, made up pledges at COP26. But exactly how will it all be implemented? Such a crucial question. Phil Black has more from Austria, which has now closed its coal-fired plants. Two power stations near the Austrian city of Graz. The one on the left is retired, a silent monument to a recent time when the country burned coal for some of its electricity. The neighbouring, shiny, new gas fuel facility now does the work. The upgrade is significant. Austria is one of only three countries in Europe to shut down all coal-fired plants. Replacing coal with natural gas isn't carbon-free, but it's a step in the right direction. The CO2 footprint of this uh, uh, power plant is much lower than this footprint. About 60% lower, but gas can only be an interim move if Austria is to achieve its green power ambitions. Christoph Kurzmann-Friedel manages this site. Austria wants to be 100% renewable by 2030. Does that mean this will close down by 2030? Uh, I'm not sure. Austria embraced a big renewable energy source decades before the first warnings about climate change. Most of its electricity comes from hydropower. We also uh, have to build new capacity in solar power and wind power as well. Mikkel Strugel, the CEO of Austria's largest energy company, says even with a big head start from hydro, getting to 100% renewables in under a decade won't be easy. It's ambitious, and we, for you, sure. And you don't necessarily have all the answers yet. Yes. But it's important to try. We do not have all the answers. We have to do research. We have to uh, put strong efforts on innovation as well. Much of the research, innovation and hope in Austria is focused on green hydrogen. The basic idea is on windy or sunny days, you use excess electricity to make hydrogen gas, which can be stored or transported. Then when it's cloudy or the turbines aren't spinning, you turn the hydrogen back into electricity using a clean chemical reaction. We have many questions uh, to solve. Marcus Sartori is a project leader at Hydrogen Center Austria. Of course, it's a very um, complex system, but um, we have the possibility to incorporate the, the, the renewables and, and to build uh, up a new sustainable green uh, energy system. And this, is, this can be done with actual technologies, but it will cost us. At the power station in Graz, hydrogen's potential is being tested with a pilot project. The possibilities are vast. So are the challenges. It's a potential game changer, do you think? I do think so, yes. And crucially, there's still so much work that needs to be done yes, for this to operate right. at scale. Mm? Because it's just too expensive right now. No, it's too expensive, but we have to do the first steps. And this is one of the first steps. Austria's coal habit was pretty modest compared to some other European countries. Poland, for example, still mines and burns it for around 80% of its electricity. And yet, even with Austria's strong starting position, early commitment and willingness to innovate, the ultimate success of its low-carbon transition is still uncertain. Phil Black, CNN, Graz.
Austria. Yeah, we've got to do the research and we've got to share the research too. And just a reminder of why these kind of dramatic steps are needed. In South America, the Paraná River has reached its lowest levels in decades due to a severe drought. The crisis is disrupting energy production and commerce. And environmentalists say climate change is contributing to the problem, as CNN's Rafael Romo reports. Winding through three different countries, the Paraná is the second longest river in South America after the Amazon. It flows for nearly 4,900 kilometers, 3,000 miles, through Brazil, Paraguay, and Argentina. The Paraná not only provides water for all three countries, it's a crucial waterway for Paraguay's commerce, according to the country's director of the River and Ocean Navigators Association. But since April, that commerce has been dead in the water due to the river's low levels. The impact to the Paraguayan foreign trade is very important, Muñoz says, because 96% of this commerce is done through the waterways. The problems caused by the low water levels go beyond commerce. The Paraná feeds two crucial hydroelectric plants, Itaipu, which provides power to both Paraguay and Brazil, and Yacireta, which is shared with Argentina. Lucas Chamorro, a chief engineer at Yacireta, says during the Southern Hemisphere's past winter, the Paraná had its lowest water levels in more than 50 years, which meant a 25% decrease in the power plant's ability to produce energy. It, it is uh, a very serious problem. It is Maria Jose Villanueva, a leader for World Wildlife Fund Mexico, an environmental organization, says drought conditions are affecting a wide swath of Latin America and explains serious problems like increasing wildfires in Brazil's Amazon. This is something that we're seeing exacerbated around the region. In Mexico to Argentina, uh, the lack of rainfall that it's uh, uh, caused to climate change, but it's also exacerbated by the different drivers like land use, degradation, deforestation, and uh, over-exploitation of aquifers. Are there any other explanations different from climate change? Droughts have happened all across the human and nature and, and the Earth's uh, history. However, uh, climate change is exacerbating the periods of uh, lack of rainfall. Last year, NASA published a map of severe drought conditions in South America showing parched land in dark red. Earlier this month, local media reported that unusually powerful sandstorms had left at least six people dead in Brazil, a situation caused in part by severe drought conditions grappling the country's southeast. And back in May, a surreal scene developed in northwestern Mexico. For the first time in more than three decades, residents in a town in Sinaloa state were able to visit the tombs of loved ones in a cemetery that had been underwater after a dam was built there in 1987. The country was going through one of its worst droughts in recent memory. In April, Mexico's Water Authority reported 75% of its territory was experiencing moderate to exceptional drought conditions. A report by the Washington-based America Society and Council of the Americas published over the summer stated that abnormally dry conditions in Argentina, Brazil, Mexico and Paraguay threatened water reserves and economic recovery, a situation that may not reverse itself, experts say, unless factors like deforestation, illegal mining and over-exploitation of natural water resources are halted. Rafael Romo, CNN, Mexico City. Okay, coming up on First Move, a new battery that weighs less than a pineapple 
but can power a car. Sounds juicy? Well, we'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move into a battery breakthrough for the EV industry. The GM-backed startup SES has unveiled a lithium metal battery big enough to power a car. Lithium metal batteries are lighter than the traditional lithium iron ones and denser, effectively doubling the range of an electric car, the company says. SES also announced a new gigafactory in Shanghai to produce the batteries, which it says will be in cars by 2025. Here to discuss is Chi Chao Hu. He's co-founder and president of SES. Great to have you on the show. We've given our viewers a little taster there of what this battery can mean. Just talk us through what makes it so transforming, transforming in your mind. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, uh, today there is this race uh, among global car makers really to be the first to put next generation lithium metal batteries inside a car because it offers three things, longer range, safer, and also it's actually lower cost. And uh, today what we showed, this large 100 amp hour lithium metal battery is the world's largest lithium metal battery ever. And then it's also the world's first 100 amp hour lithium metal battery. And this really is a major milestone for the automotive industry. So um, um, uh, we and also uh, our uh, uh, car maker partners are very excited about this. I want to get excited too, but we need some more comparisons. You're saying it's a lot lighter, that you're saying that it can go around double the distance. What is the cost to produce this relative to a lithium ion battery? What's the timing to charge this battery? Can you give us all the comparisons for what we're currently seeing on the market today? Sure. So uh, one example, if you look at the GM Hummer EV, right. uh, today powered by lithium ion, that can go 300 miles. If you keep everything the same using lithium metal, that can go 500 miles. And then charge, these batteries are capable of being charged from uh, 10% to 90% in 12 minutes. So it can wow. do fast charge. And then it, it can also significantly increase the range. Price? Price-wise, we expect the final uh, cost of battery to be uh, lower than, than conventional lithium-ion using the same cathode. Actually, lithium-metal battery, um, uh, about 60% of the manufacturing process is quite similar to lithium-ion. So, so cost-wise, we also expect that to be lower than lithium-ion. Okay. And the other question, I think, would be is we see the world trying to scale up charging infrastructure. One of the critical I think hurdles for seeing greater adoption for electric vehicles. Will you be able to charge this battery at what's being traditionally used and created for as charging stations for lithium ion batteries? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Lithium metal and lithium ion will share the same charging infrastructure. Yes. Okay, this is good, good news. So you had a quote and I loved it. You said, look, we don't need another battery breakthrough. We need a battery breakthrough that gets batteries actually out there produced and in the market. You've also, as I mentioned, created this gigafactory. Talk about how quickly you can scale up because I know you recently decided to go public. So you've got more money in the kitty now as well to spend. How quickly can we get these batteries to those that you've tied up with and get them on the market? Yeah, I think the one benefit about this lithium metal is that more than half of this is lithium ion. So that means we can actually scale this up fairly quickly. And I think our timeline is probably the most aggressive out there. But then we back it up with, with uh, um, actual, actual milestones. And then today we, we show this large battery. And, and this is a, a major milestone in this uh, 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 roadmap. And then we expect to have 
uh, A sample next year and then B sample 23, uh, C sample 24, so uh, start of production 25. That's our plan. I read recently that, I know you're working with GM and Hyundai, that you would have vehicle-ready cells to those companies for road testing by the end of this year. Can you stick to that timetable? Yes. Is that correct? Absolutely. So we just mm. unveiled this battery uh, at our battery world. Right. Uh, and then this really is a, a, a real battery. So this will go to GM Hyundai for testing now. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and you mentioned as well that you're at the forefront of this industry. I was just looking at some of your competitors like SK Innovation, LG Energy Solutions, and their timeframes are sort of 2025 to, to 2030. How important is being the first mover and the first mover advantage in this space in your mind? Very important. And I think especially for a newcomer, if you're not the first, then really you, you shouldn't be there. Um, for larger companies, they can afford to be to be second, uh, but, but as a newcomer, you really have to be the first. And one big advantage that we have compared to the to the established players like SK, uh, CATL, is that is 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 focus and also the lack of legacy. We don't do any lithium-ion batteries. The only thing that we do is lithium metal, and and all of our resource is focused on this. Whereas the larger um, uh, cell suppliers, they actually do a lot of LIB, lithium-ion batteries. So we are much more focused on this, and, and I'm pretty confident that we will be the first to commercialize this. What's going to be the biggest challenge? So I think the biggest challenge is actually lots of small things, lots of small mm -hmm. details. And then anytime you, you try to build a real large-scale manufacturing company, just a lot of things could go wrong. Supply chain, quality control, uh, performance, integration to the vehicles, the final consumer, the data collection, the software, a lot of things could go wrong. Just a ton of small things. But are you clearly thinking about them? Um, so it's a case of watch this space. Come back and talk to us soon, please. Fantastic to uh, hear about your technology. Thank you. Chi Chao Hu, thank you so much, the co-founder and the president. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank you. Great to chat. Okay, coming up next. The most widespread outbreak there is since the virus began. China sticks to its zero COVID policy in the face of rising infections. But what does that mean for the rest of the Asia Pacific region? We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. China is determined to maintain its zero COVID policy, even as other nations in the Asia Pacific region ease restrictions. China is currently dealing with the most widespread outbreak since COVID began back in 2019. The number of infections is extremely small compared with other parts of the world, and this is a critical point, but it's still too high for China's standards. CNN's Chrissy Liu Stout reports on the drastic containment measures which put China at odds with the rest of the region. California dreaming in China. Chinese social media influencers pose at a Costco in Shanghai to pretend they're in Los Angeles, a vivid reminder of how long China has been sealed off from the rest of the world. For nearly two years, most people in China have been unable to travel abroad due to harsh and lengthy quarantines upon return, as well as limited flights and some delays in visa processing. The country is sticking to a zero-COVID strategy, determined to eliminate the virus within its borders, despite fully vaccinating more than 75% of the population. Hong Kong, with its fate closely tied to China, is also in a sort of coronavirus purgatory. 
with many of its residents, especially expats, waiting for the city to reopen just as the rest of the region is opening up. On Monday, South Korea took its first step to what they're calling a return to normal life. Despite reporting thousands of new cases every week, it's easing restrictions like lifting curfews and allowing some social gatherings. In Tokyo, curfews were lifted for bars and restaurants at the end of October, despite hundreds of new cases reported across Japan each day. Thailand on Monday started to welcome fully vaccinated travelers from low-risk countries without quarantine. Also on Monday, Sydney and Melbourne relaxed its border controls for citizens and permanent residents who are fully vaccinated. Fiji plans to reopen to fully vaccinated tourists on December 1st. Indonesia's resort island of Bali has reopened for some international arrivals, while New Zealand has abandoned its COVID-19 elimination strategy. And Singapore has also embraced living with the virus. The region's shift away from zero COVID follows generally high vaccination rates. Despite a slow vaccine rollout, countries including Australia, Japan, South Korea and Singapore are now among the most vaccinated in the world per capita. China, the country where the virus was first detected, is the only country in the region still chasing zero COVID. And it doesn't appear restrictions will ease anytime soon as the Beijing Olympic Games edge closer. And President Xi Jinping pursues an unprecedented third term in power. To ensure a smooth transition of the leadership, then but that policy might be sustained by through uh, late next year. With most overseas travel no longer viable, Chinese officials have promoted domestic tourism instead. But with the highly infectious Delta variant, that too is risky. A single confirmed case recently sent Shanghai Disneyland into temporary lockdown. And yet many Chinese netizens praise the government and Disney for what they see as an effective response. One writes, although a pity, this is Shanghai speed with timely detection and control. In zero COVID China, Disneyland can go into snap lockdown and influencers pretend they're in L.A. Christy Lustout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe, connect the world with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.